Welcome to Asia Rising, a podcast from Latrobe Asia, where we discuss news, views, and general happenings of Asian states and societies. I'm your host, Matt Smith. India's Prime Minister, Narendra Modi, is a man with strong views on economics. He came into office in 2014 with a vision for India to be a global manufacturing power and promises that his strong leadership will usher in an economic revival. Here to discuss Modi's economic policies and the economy of India, whether they paid off or not, is Adam Roberts, former South Asia correspondent for The Economist, current Europe business correspondent, author of Superfast Primetime Ultimate Nation, The Relentless Invention of Modern India. Thank you for joining me, Adam. Happy to be here. So Modi talks big about his economic ambitions during the elections, and uh, he criticised the efforts of his predecessor, Manmohan Singh. Now that he's had the chance to prove himself, more or less, in the three years that have gone, how would you describe his economic leadership? Uh, Is he ambitious? Is he cautious? Is he reckless? Yeah, we've gone through different phases with Modi. So go back to the the 2014 election, one of the big planks that he campaigned on was his success as the chief minister of Gujarat beforehand. He talked about that as a model part of the Indian economy. He said he had brought good times to the people of Gujarat, and if you only made him prime minister, he would bring good times Din to the people of India as a whole. Mm. And he would illustrate that in campaign meetings by talking about concrete things. He would say we'll build great big pipes that you can drive a car through to bring water to the deserts, we'll create jobs for young people, good jobs, jobs in factories, we will make the infrastructure work, but we'll also get manufacturing going, we'll do all the sorts of things that, say, China has done to really modernise the economy. He would also talk about high-speed trains, he would say that India could be great and powerful again. If you like to make a comparison to Donald Trump saying he would be talking about India first, a dominant India that would Mm. rise in the future. Well, that was the excitement of the election campaign. and, And what followed soon after was the first budget, which many of us thought was a bit disappointing. He didn't deliver the sort of liberal economic reforms that we hoped he would do. And there was a period, I'd say the first year or two after he came into office, where he did some, you know, some good things talk about efforts to open up for foreign investment in the defense industry, in somewhat in retail, something in insurance, but nothing really big. And the question was, where were the big bang reforms? When was there going to be some massive change to shake India up? And we didn't really get any big reforms, although we had this general improvement and we had better government spending and so on. So there was confidence and an increase in foreign investment, but there wasn't really any big shake up. But is that the expected outcome after an election. You talk big, you make big promises. That's what gets you the votes. You criticise your predecessor, even though they mightn't have been doing such a bad job in this case. But you're not expected to be held to your promises, more or less, are you? Especially when you're doing it on such a grand scale as as India needs. You're right. And and maybe he, he would argue or they would argue that they didn't have to move too fast. I would argue, though, that you have to move fast. If you want to get the benefits of doing these difficult, painful reforms, such as sorting out tax policy, sorting out labor reforms and so on, you do them early. You do them in your first six months, your first 10 months, because the benefits take a few years to filter through. So if you wait and do them too late, Mm. by the time of the next election, well, you won't be feeling any of the benefits. You'll just be feeling the, the anxiety and the frustration from others. Now, Modi did do some big, bold reforms more recently. He did this thing called demonetization. You might want to get into that with the withdrawal of currency. 
He's managed to push through goods and services tax. So he has been bolder more recently. So the old complaint that he didn't do anything big has been replaced now by questions of whether he's doing the right big things. He's a bolder man than he was before on the economy, but we're still unsure whether that boldness is going to bring the results we want to see. So were any of the the big things from your perspective, were any of them viable? I mean, running a small district, a, a region of India is very different to the grand scale of the complete country. I can't imagine anybody who would want that job, really, considering how much needs to be done there. But, you know, he promised, uh, I've got a list here, 100 million jobs in manufacturing by 2022, uh, a manufacturing boom, internet networks to all the villages when there's probably other things that they could do. You know, we can't even get that working over here to all our villages in Australia. Uh, A clean Ganges River, 100 million extra toilets by 2019, uh, and you know, that's yeah. just the beginning. Is he, is he on track for any of this or is it...? No, well, most of them he's way off track. So the, the probably the most important one is jobs. You know, in the election, young Indians were craving the chance to have proper jobs. Mm. And although official statistics say that India's economy is growing maybe at 6 or 7% and that investment's up by foreigners and so on, if you look at the net creation of formal jobs, good jobs, it's about zero. On, on you know, on balance, slowdown in the construction industry, various things such as the crackdown on dodgy currency, various things have happened to hit the job creation process in India. So under Manmohan Singh, his predecessor, India was producing far too few jobs. On balance, India needs to create about a million jobs every month. That's a net gain of one million every month. Yeah. And they were not achieving anything close to that. And today they're achieving basically nothing. They're not moving forward on job creation at all. So this is a big economic problem for him later on. Yeah, yeah. So what's caused this then? I mean, to go from a little to none, something's gone backwards at that point. One thing that I, I do see in the new India now is that just simply the confidence in the country from outside has bought a lot of foreign investment. You would think that that would bring a lot of construction. Uh, there's no Trump Tower yet, but there's always ambitions for it. Give it time. So why is there no job creation? Well, foreign investment is up, enormously up, and that's very welcome. But India's got a big economy, $2.5 trillion or so on, and foreign investment is nothing compared to domestic investment. Mm. India's companies are big. India has plenty of billionaires. It has plenty of domestic investors who could be investing. They're not. Well, why aren't they investing? You could say it's because they don't trust the political system. Maybe they know more about it than the outsiders do. But the main answer is the banks don't work. India has some deeply troubled banks. It's got uh, lots of non-performing assets in the state-run banks. The failure to tackle that banking problem and to confront that has held back the domestic investment. And Mm. so until you have a clarity of how you're going to deal with those troubled banks, plus the moment that businesses feel they can really have confidence that real growth is coming, they're going to hold back. Now, there's been one or two good steps recently. There's a bankruptcy law that's been finally introduced to India, which will help them sort out the problems with the banks. There is progress. It's not that there have been no reforms, but businesses are holding back for other reasons. Businesses might flourish in a time of corruption. You know, lots of dodgy businessmen made a lot of black money and they rooted it through Mauritius and they turned it into investing in housing around Delhi and Mumbai and so on. A lot of this was deeply corrupt, but it did create jobs and it kept the economy bubbling on and moving along. It also just happened to be a process of avoiding taxes and a way of laundering ill-gotten gains in, in various ways. So there was economic growth created in the past, sometimes through very murky means. And by cracking down on corruption, he's also 
partly crack down on growth. So say something like a bank reform. If he came up and said, I'm going to reform all the banks in the way that they're doing this, this is going to have a flow-on effect for business and down the line create jobs. Why is he not doing that? Is that not enough of a big-ticket item to come out and say, I'm reforming banks? Yeah, banks are, I mean, as we know, after the financial crisis in Britain or America, banks are very hard to fix. Mm. It takes a lot of money. You've got moral dilemmas about solving the problems of one bank and maybe causing problems in other banks. Also, a lot of the dodgy assets that the banks have, you know, the dud loans that they've got out there, are to politically connected people and to big infrastructure spenders. So some of the people who are supposed to be building the new roads and the bridges and the ports of India Mm. have massive debts with these banks. If you want to sort out the banks, you've really got to punish those people who who are defaulting on their loans. But the people you're going to punish are also those who you want to get investing and getting the economy moving. So it's not an easy thing to solve, especially when the central bank has been quite timid about tackling this really thorny problem too. And as I mentioned, it's extra difficult when you didn't have a good bankruptcy law in place to sort of force some of those dodgy borrowers to the wall. So when you write about this issue, you've used the term strongman economics when you talk about Modi. What is that and how is he employing it? So I use that term for an op-ed I wrote for the New York Times and, and it partly refers to the idea that Modi is a very dominant figure within the Indian government. He is an individual has enormous say over what happens. He's a very domineering man and is very ready to take bold, sometimes even reckless decisions. And the most typical example of this was his decision back in November to suddenly scrap around 86% of India's currency and just to withdraw from circulation the notes, the Mm. cash notes, the 500 and 1,000 rupee notes that everyone uses. Can we wade into that a little bit? Where did he get that sort of idea It seems to be such a, can I say reckless? It seemed to have come out of nowhere. Yeah, it it was. I mean, I think almost by design, they had to do it suddenly. They didn't want people to be able to prepare for this to come because the idea, the purpose was to catch people who had stockpiled cash because they were doing so for reasons of tax evasion or to uh, use for corruption. Maybe political parties had stockpiled cash in order to bribe voters. Or maybe you're a property developer with hotels you're building and you want to pay everyone in cash to avoid uh, being traced in what you're doing. And so the idea was that if you suddenly announced this dramatic withdrawal of all the cash and mm. told people that you had to go and hand it into the bank and get new notes and so on, that you would somehow capture like the tide going out, you suddenly see all these people swimming naked because they, they were caught with all their all their dodgy gains. And that was the purpose, and that's what was announced when they did it. Later on, some other justifications were dreamt up that it really was a push to get people to go to the digital economy and to move away from using cash at all, and there were other reasons for doing it. But at the time, that was what was announced. It was to catch corruption, to stop corruption. Unfortunately, it had a very negative effect on people. It meant that for weeks upon weeks, Huge numbers of Indians had to queue at banks to try and change their money. If you were a casual labourer, as most people are in India, you weren't getting paid. If you're a small businessman, nobody had any money to buy stuff from you. To a large extent, the economy really slowed down. And we see that in the economic figures now, looking back over the past six months. And to what end? You know, What was really achieved by it? Well, nothing. Because the central bank and the government said that measure of whether this was a success was if less than 100% of all the money that was out there was brought back into the central bank. So if only 70% of the money came back, then you could say, well, 30% was this dodgy, corrupt money, and that's been taken out of the system. 
well, just recently we got the stats of, of how much was returned and it was 99.9%. Wow. Yeah. So basically it achieved nothing on the corruption. Maybe it helped a bit with digitization and getting people to use credit cards and so on. But it was a very big sledgehammer to help crack a very small nut if, if that was really the goal. Mm-hmm. When you first heard that it was happening, what was your perception on it? I can go back and have a look at my Twitter feed. I think I wrote, is this a joke? I just thought it was nonsense to be doing it. It happened to be the same night that Donald Trump got elected. So the rest of the world was paying attention to the cataclysmic events in, in Washington. But in India, they were really shocked. The strange thing in India politically is that it was very popular, mm. that ordinary Indians think it was a bold and decisive measure to crack down on corruption. And they liked the boldness. And they didn't really understand the economics of it, I think. Many people didn't. Mm. And yet, if you talk to Indian economists, if you talk to the likes of Amartya Sen, the great Indian economist at Cambridge and, and elsewhere, he immediately said he thought this was a despotic act. This is the sort of act of a repressive government that doesn't care about inconveniencing ordinary people. It just does something very bold because it looks good and was, as you said, reckless. Yeah, and I think history will show that it was basically a big waste of time. But is India the sort of place where you need to take drastic steps like that in order to do reform for something to have an effect? There's so many people, there's so much money, there's so much at stake, you can't do something small. Yes, I I sympathise with the fact that he wanted to be bold because for years before he did this, I was lamenting that he wasn't doing big, bold, big bang reforms. So I admire the fact that he was ready to do something bold. I just think it was the wrong thing to choose to do. I'm almost giving him points for trying, aren't I, by saying that? It, it, yeah, I mean, fair enough. Be, be a bit sympathetic. It's not easy <laughs> to be a Prime Minister of India. I, I accept that. My feeling is if you're going to be bold, be bold on something useful. You know, Do yeah. something that will be politically difficult to sell but will actually get you some really good results. So I'm currently based in France and the new president of France is doing very difficult labor reform that's very unpopular. Well, that's exactly what India needs as well. If you want to get back to that job creation point, when will companies in India really want to start hiring people? Well, when it's a bit easier to avoid the bureaucracy and all the pain that labor reforms impose on you. Mm. Uh, The risk of hiring people is very high in India. And so Modi doesn't dare tackle labor reform. But actually, if he took the bold step of tackling that at a national level, maybe that formal job creation rate would go up and that would be something that really would benefit ordinary people. Would that benefit Modi though? Because it's a small win. I don't know how small a win it would be. I mean, if if really there were more jobs created, he would be addressing one of the core messages of his 2014 campaign. Of course, it's not easy. I understand it's not easy. We're living in a world where jobs are being automated and even out of India, they get outsourced to somewhere else. It's not that as a politician, you have all the levers at your command to make these things happen. Mm. But I think one of the problems of India is it is not yet open enough. People don't yet trust markets enough to solve some of the problems that Indians have. They think that it's bureaucrats that are going to be the smartest to do everything and that politicians and those in office will, should really decide how everything's done. Instead of trusting markets, of course, I work for The Economist, so I would say the market is helpful, but India is distinguished from other countries, other economies, by being quite reluctant to let markets do their jobs. And that's one of the reasons why it hasn't got richer quicker. Mm. So Modi's getting praise, at least for attempting the demonetization last year. And he's currently, the last figure that I saw was his party sitting at about 81% approval rate, which any other leader in any other country would love to have that sort of approval rate. So two years away from the election, that makes it his election to lose at this point, really, doesn't it? It does, yeah. I think that 
I hadn't heard that approval rate figure, and it sounds mm. plausible, actually. I think you know a lot of Indians are very pleased, even though the economy is not doing quite as well as it could be. A lot of Indians are very pleased with Modi. He's a strong figure. He's charismatic. He's, to be honest, he's raised India's profile internationally quite effectively. And despite demonetization, a lot of people seem to think that you know his actions on the economy have been helpful. Yeah. It is his to lose. It is the BJP's election to lose. They dominate at the state level in many big, important states, and that's the good basis for winning the national election. And you look around at any alternative, the main alternative national party is the Congress, and the Congress is utterly lost, doesn't have a clue what it wants to do, has a disastrous leader in the form of Rahul Gandhi, uh, hasn't worked out how to appeal to the public, how to confront Mr. Modi. Mm. Uh, there are some good values and some nice uh, beliefs that some in Congress have about being liberal and secular and so on, but they don't have a coherent vision to offer to the voters. There's a side of the Congress party that I've always liked, which is quite liberal and quite open to uh, opening up the economy. You know, the big reforms of the 1990s were done by Manmohan Singh, who later became prime minister. Yeah, And yeah. so there's a side of Congress that I think is appealing, but these days it doesn't have any credibility, I'm afraid. So you've sat down and met with Modi. Yeah. Uh, you're a journalist for The Economist. Is he interested in in what you think about India? Is he interested in an exchange of ideas when you talk to him? No, not in the slightest. He, he, <laughs> he wants to tell me what he thinks. And, oh, okay. And he doesn't mind me asking questions and, and pressing him on questions, but he has a fairly set formula for how he responds to things. If he was more receptive, what would you have told him re-economics? Would you take it back to bank reform? Or is there, is there an easy win that Modi hasn't exploited from your experience? Well, I think he's done some good things. And I, I don't want to be too negative about what Modi has done. So for example, they've done this thing called the goods and services tax, where they're trying to create a single market for all of India. So in the past, each state would have its own tax rates for things. So if you wanted to trade some goods inside India, you had to pretty much do the same as crossing an international border to go from one bit of India to the next. Mm. And he's finally brought in this national goods and services tax. And I would praise him enormously for getting that through. And then I'd say, well, the easy win would have been to to do it in a better way, because what he ended up doing was bringing in a very complicated, bureaucratic and messy form of the GST, which will minimize the benefits it brings and maximize the hassle that it causes. And so it's not necessarily in what he's doing, it's in how he does stuff. Yeah. That's part of it. The second thing is, and again, I'm from The Economist, so maybe not everyone would agree with this, but I think there are many things that the state does in India that it does very badly. And the state could reduce some of that activity and concentrate on doing other stuff better. So there's no reason for the state to be running factories that produce watches or steel. There's no reason for the Indian state to be running a national airline. It does it very, very badly. Air India loses a billion dollars a year. Mm. You should use that billion dollars a year for something better like educating children and leave it to private companies who have found out how to run airlines pretty well, as we've seen in the rest of the world and indeed in India. So it might sound a bit ideological, but I think you know there are easy wins in the sense that stop the state doing stuff that it's terrible at doing yes. and focus the state on doing stuff it should be doing much better. For example, welfare and spending on health and education or creating the conditions for business to thrive. There's a lot of bureaucracy that you could get rid of. Mm. India is a difficult, difficult place to do business. Look at World Bank rankings. It's ranked very badly. So it's about doing less, which in some ways sounds like it should be easier than doing more. 
I think there are some relatively easy wins. Don't pretend that politically everything's easy, but yeah. I think there are steps you could take cutting bureaucracy that would be very beneficial. Mm. Lastly, who, who goes to hug who when you're with Modi? Who initiates it? <laughs> I certainly would never initiate a hug with Modi, but he has come and hugged me. <laughs> so yeah, there was, okay. There was one occasion where... After a few of my interviews with him, I went to meet him again with a bunch of other journalists, local journalists and Indian ones. He recognized me because of the other interviews we'd done. And in front of all these other journalists, he walked across the room. And ironically, it was the same week that we published a picture of Modi on the front cover of The Economist in a quite unflattering image. <laughs> and he walked towards me and he was striding towards me. I thought, oh, no, he's unhappy with what we've done. And then he gave me a bear hug and I didn't know whether to sort of blush or to be embarrassed or feel I was compromised in front of all these other journalists. Yeah, I'm sort of pleased that he recognised me and a bit embarrassed that I got the bear hug. I think it needs to happen more. Have you hugged a journalist today? <laughs> <laughs> journalists need hugs. I'd be worried that I'd misjudge the hug and be that guy who holds it too long with Modi. I think there is that risk. No, he's the one who holds it too okay. long with you. When you look at the, <laughs> the shots of him hugging Mark Zuckerberg or hugging all these other people, or, you know, there's something a bit uncomfortable about the time it's just a little bit too long all right thanks very much for your time today thank you you've been listening to asia rising the podcast from latrobe asia if you like this podcast you can subscribe to it on apple podcasts and soundcloud please tell your friends about it you can follow latrobe asia on twitter we're at latrobe asia and you can follow adam roberts on twitter he's at a roberts journo and his book now available in all good bookstores is super fast prime time ultimate nation the relentless invention of modern india I'm Matt Smith, and thanks for listening.